Friends, we are here indeed to remember, to proclaim, to declare that sin has left a crimson stain on every one of us. Every one of us. But Jesus provided a way to wipe, to wash it. And to wash it white as snow. Why? How is that possible? Because Jesus paid it all. I pray that you would consider um, reflecting on the truth of this song even throughout the week. Uh, this song, in some ways, is a wonderful introduction to the book of Isaiah. Uh, if you have been with us through the book of Isaiah for the last eight sermons in this, in this book, uh, you remember in chapter 1, one of the particular things that God brings against his people. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will become like wool. In some ways, Jesus paid it all is the song that fits well with everything that the book of Isaiah is about. And as we continue our sermon series through the book of Isaiah, I encourage us to consider carefully what God has provided for his people to indeed Wash them away from sin. If only God's people would hear what God has to say to them. If only God's people would trust what God has prepared for them. If only God's people will renounce their ways and come to the Lord and respond to Him. This morning, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We'll be continuing our sermon series in chapter 9. Uh, verse 8 to chapter 10, verse 34, as we are looking today at one of the ways, one of the opportunities, one of the times in this book when God exposes the futility of arrogance and self-sufficiency. The futility of arrogance and self-sufficiency because God's people have fallen in the trap of arrogance. They have fallen in the trap of self-sufficiency. They would rather go their way than God's way. So this morning, we're going to look at this passage. If you are new to our congregation, if you're visiting with us this morning, we are so delighted that you're with us. We, uh, if you did not bring a Bible, we encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you. Uh, this passage is found on page number 573. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take one of these Bibles, these, the Pew Bibles. Take it home with you. We'd love for you to have it. And we encourage you to read God's Word on your own. Here's God's Word for us this morning. The Lord sent a message or a word against Jacob. And it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of Rezin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east, the Philistines on the west, devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. 
So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares one another. They slice meat on the right, but are hungry still. And they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree, iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment? in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. O Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him, to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno? Like Kirkamish, is not Hamath like Arpad, is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of the people and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. 
as there was none that moved a wing or opened a mouth or chirped. Hmm. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not good? Therefore the Lord of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burden, a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn out and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be seen as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In truth, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, O oh, my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of Assyria. When they strike with a rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end. And my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea as when he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day... His burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Ayath. He has passed through Migron. At Mikmash he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass at, at Giba. They lodged for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Lashah. O poor Anathoth. Madmenah is in flight. The inhabitants of Gebim flee for their safety. This very day he will halt at Neob, at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thicket of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Quite a word. Let's pray and ask the Lord for assistance to speak to our hearts through it. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, I acknowledge that of my own I have nothing to say that would bring life to your people. But we believe that your word is able to create life. We believe that your word is able to sustain life. 
So we pray that you would speak to your people to accomplish your purposes. For the glory of Christ, we ask this, and through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. The futility of arrogance and self-sufficiency. Friends, this passage that we have just read is a long one. And it's also very poetic. Friends, I just need to say to you, if you don't like poetry, you're going to struggle with the book of Isaiah. Because so much of this book is written in poetic language, in imagery that tries to, to paint pictures in the, and, and sear these pictures in the imagination of the people of God. It's not just what God declares. It's what God paints for them. And the, the reason why this passage might feel difficult, and if you have wondered in hearing the reading of this passage, wow, I wonder what he will say out of this. I get it. Because these are pictures, and they're not necessarily very easy to, to get the first time you read. But if we, if we look carefully at this passage, there is a richness of a message in this passage that will blow your mind away. And it will not only blow your mind away, it intends to blow your arrogance away. That's what this message is about. This word is addressed against the northern tribes of Israel. Now, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, uh, is written, uh, or Isaiah is a prophet of the southern kingdom of Judah. For those of you who are not familiar with the Bible or the history of Israel, there comes a point in Israel's history when when, when the nation divides in two. The southern kingdom, called Judah, and the northern kingdom, called Israel, or Jacob, or Ephraim. That's how... Whenever you see the word Jacob, Israel, Ephraim, it's referring not to all of the people of God. It's referring specifically to the northern tribes that have split off from Judah. The passage we have before us is a message written specifically to the northern tribes. Now, Isaiah as a prophet has been sent for the southern tribes. Uh, If we remember in chapter 7, he was sent by God to King Ahaz to speak, to confront him, to speak to him. Ahaz was a king of the southern kingdom. And God called Isaiah to call Ahaz to to trust not in Assyria, but to trust in the Lord and what he promised to do. But Ahaz doesn't want to trust in the Lord. So in chapter 8, we see that God calls Isaiah to give this message, call people not to trust in Assyria, but to call and trust uh, in the Lord. He's giving that to everyone. And we see that in chapter 8 and part of chapter 9. And then in the rest of chapter 9 and then part of chapter 10, we see a specific word that God sends, not to the southern kingdom, but specifically to the northern tribes. And this kingdom, if this message is a message that's a confrontation. Look at verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob. God's word is described as falling on Israel. Can you just imagine? So the Lord sends a message against, and then the Lord just falls on Israel. Uh, this picture means that the people of God in the northern parts of, of Israel, nor- northern tribes, will not be able to escape the word of God. They will ignore it. They have been ignoring God's word for a long, long time. But they won't escape it. In other words, God's word will not fail to reach God's people, even though God's people don't pay attention to it. Friends, stop to think for a moment about this. 
I know that we would rather want to hear a message of comfort, a message of encouragement, but there are times when the Lord needs to confront His people. When the Lord has to speak against us, it's not merely that He is against us, or that rather, um, or that somehow He doesn't like us. Rather, it's that we are against Him. It's not God's fault that He has a message against His people. It's His people's fault that He has a message against them. So let's just make sure we get this straight. If God has a message against His people, it's not God's fault. It's the people's fault. The amazing part of the story is that despite the rebellion of God's people, despite the fact that God has a message against them, and God declares to them what He will bring to them and against them, God still maintained a remnant out of them. God kept a remnant. Not all. Not all. Because most of them actually were the object of his divine wrath and did perish. And yet, God, God should have killed all of them. Yet in God's mercy and grace, he kept a remnant. And this theme of the remnant we'll see coming up, creeping up again in this passage and start building up in the book of Isaiah. Uh, so this message is a message against the northern tribes. We're going to see that this message is also against Assyria. And then there's going, we're, at the end, we're going to see a message for the remnant, a comfort for the remnant. Now let's look at these three segments of our text. A message against the northern tribes, against Assyria, and then for, um, for the remnant. Here's the first part of the, our passage that we read today. The word against the northern tribes could be summarized in this way. Why God's anger is not turned away. This is the message that God gives against the northern tribes. Here's why God's anger is not turned away. I wonder when I read this longer passage, I wonder if you picked up on the repetition of the phrase, for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Did you hear that? It shows up four times. If you look at your Bibles, in chapter 9, verse 12, shows up again in verse 17, shows up again in verse 21, shows up again in chapter 10, verse 4. This repetition divides the first, the third, first third of the passage in, th- in four parts. This is the point of the, of the four stanzas. Think of them as, as a song, if you will, or as poetry in four stanzas. God's anger has not turned away. His hand is still stretched against the northern tribes. The question is, why, Lord? Why is your anger still not turned away? Now, we would rather hear a message on why God's anger is turned away. That would be the message you and I would like to hear. That would be the message I would like to preach. And that's the message you would like to hear. But the message that God sent Jacob in that particular historical time was the opposite. Well, let's look at why is it that God's hand is still against his people and he chose not to withdraw his anger from them. And as we look at these reasons, I hope we recognize a pattern. The first reason, the first stanza that we see uh, in verse 10 is that they have been arrogant. The northern tribes were confident that they can restore themselves. 
and that they did not need God to help them get back. Verse 10, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Now, we don't know what caused the bricks to fall down. It's possible. Some say it may have been a, uh, one of the, the, the uh, earthquakes. Now, it's not wrong to want to restore that which has been devastated. There's nothing wrong with that. But in their case, what is wrong is, first of all, it's God who sent that against them to get their attention. And they didn't get it. Not only did they not get it, they tried to rebuild themselves without asking the Lord. In other words, it was wrong for them because they did not recognize God is the one who struck them. God did it to get their attention. They did not stop to consider God in their difficulty, and they're just making plans to get back on their feet very quickly, and not only, not only get back on their feet, make it even better. Instead of bricks, put dress stones. Instead of the sycamores, which were the common trees, put cedars, which were the stronger trees at that time. This message uh, unpacks the, the, the attitude of the northern tribes, of their arrogance, that they can get out of their difficulty without the help of God. Arrogance. Their confidence is, is in what they are able to do. And in their arrogance, they also reveal their self-sufficiency. In other words, they say, we will not let this experience darken our future. We'll get back. This is why the Lord's anger will not avert from them. Arrogance. Self-sufficiency. God is trying to get their attention and they're not giving even a second thinking, what does God have to do with this difficulty? The root of Israel's sin is arrogance and self-sufficiency. Looking at life, whether in good times or bad, and thinking that you can do it by yourself. Thinking that you don't need to rely on anyone else except yourself. Friends, arrogance is what identified as a first problem here as the root of everything else of the rest of the other three stanzas look at the second stanza the second um, issue that God brings up in verses 13 to 17 continued rebellion look at verse 13 the people did not turn to him who struck them nor inquire of the Lord of hosts this is what God desired for them when he allowed the earthquake or when he allowed the difficulties the bricks to fall down he was hoping they would come back to the Lord. He, they, he was hoping that they would inquire of the Lord. Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation? But no, they didn't ask from the Lord. They didn't inquire of the Lord. They didn't turn back to the Lord. Rather, they continued to go in their rebellion. Friends, if you sense the Lord is trying to get your attention, do not be arrogant in thinking that you can keep going your own way. Friend, keeping your direction when you are going the, right way, the wrong way is not a virtue. It's arrogance. Don't confuse perseverance with arrogance. If God is wanting to get your attention, the best thing for you and I to do is to stop and consider our ways and consider our ways in light of 
his ways and turn to him. The third stanza, the third part of this poem of what God has against his people and why his anger is not stopping. The third stanza, we see that their arrogance and self-sufficiency continued in rebellion and this started affecting their, all their areas of life. From relationships to social justice. The picture we get in verse 18 is a picture of a fire that has gone wild and can't be stopped. This imagery is used to describe how wickedness has caused damage in other areas of life. Look at verse 18. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest. Now this is a poetic picture of what wickedness is able to do. Burning up everything. Affecting everything. In other words, a rebellious heart will not be able to put a control on where wickedness stops. You think you can control wickedness. You think, I'll just do one step in this direction. I'll just keep going one more step in, in my ways, and I think I can control this. No, you won't be able to control it. Not for long. Wickedness burns like fire. It goes wild. It affects everything. But then look at how this started affecting some more concrete ways. In their case, greediness and lack of being satisfied. Verse 20, they slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. And they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Their own lack of being satisfied. Always wanting more, feeling unfulfilled, leads them to act destructively against one another. Now in this picture, this is a poetic picture, they're not satisfied, so they start eating their own flesh. Again, this is not real, this is picture. The point of it is further explained in verse 21, when the flesh is the fact that some of these tribes of the northern kingdom were actually experiencing tension among themselves. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh. They are in social unrest. The northern tribes were lacking peace among themselves. They were devouring one another because they were not satisfied with what they had. They had lack of fulfillment. They were missing out on what they thought life should be all about. And because of that, they started acting in destructive ways against one another. The only thing that kept the northern tribes together, united, was one thing. That they hated Judah. That is what it says. The, the only thing that, that they have together is that they are hating the, the southern kingdom. That's it. Oh, friends, don't think that wickedness is only those evil things that are glaring evil. Being unsatisfied, always looking for the fulfillment in the next experience of life, acting in ways that devours other people is a sign of the rebelliousness of heart against our maker. The internal strife of the northern tribes was a sign of their wickedness. Yes, dear friends, divine wrath. I love how one author says, divine wrath manifests itself in a spirit of total self-concern, bringing with it no satisfaction. And when that happens, Relational discord builds up. But the fourth stanza, if this is not enough, the fourth stanza brings it even further. Not only that they were in tension among one another, but oppression and injustice has become the norm. Actually, more than the norm. 
In, in chapter 10, verse 1 through 4, we see the fourth stanza. Why is it that the Lord's anger has not turned away? Oppression has become more than the norm. Oppression has become the law of the land. Chapter 10, verse 1. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. At the end of each of these four stanzas, we get to hear this refrain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Because of arrogance, self-sufficiency, which led to further rebellion, which led them to be deeply unsatisfied and caused their relational strife, which eventually produced a culture and a society of oppression and injustice. But notice the progression of these sins. The northern tribes didn't just wake up one day and say, we want to be unjust. We just want to be oppressive. We want to start writing laws that, that are oppressive to the poor. No, they didn't start that way. It started with arrogance. It started with self-sufficiency. It started with continuing in rebellion and not seeking the Lord. It continued to manifest in the strife and the relational tensions, and eventually the whole culture gave in. Oh, dear friends, if I one author says, Pride is the haughtiness of those who get their own way by their own devices. Arrogance is superiority blended with self-sufficiency. A prideful and arrogant heart is one that stubbornly backs his own judgment, trusts his own responses, depends on his own resources, and puts his own policies to work. Friend, I wonder if you have been trying to live your life with the same spirit of arrogance and self-sufficiency that the, nation, the, the, the tribes of Israel, the northern tribes, have fallen into. Arrogant people think they can get their way. They think they can get whatever they put their mind to. Friends, that may work for a while until God intervenes in a drastic way. And in this case, God intervenes with a uh, against the northern tribes of Israel by sending Assyria. Because of all this, look at verse 5 in chapter 10. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. But friends, Assyria, I'm sorry, Israel is not the only one who is arrogant in our passage. Assyria is too. So for the second half of or second part of our passage, of our, of our text, we see God's word given against Assyria. We see that specifically in, in chapter 10, verse 5 through verse 19. Assyria has been chosen by God to be the rod of God's anger against his own people. But Assyria is not content to do only what God told them to do. No, Assyria wants to do more than what God asked them to do. Assyria wants to do more than God, what God planned them to do. Look at verse 7. But he, is, he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. It is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. Even though God has chosen Assyria to accomplish God's purpose, Assyria was arrogant in the assignment God had given her. And we get to see what Assyria thought of herself. Look at verse 10. As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, 
whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? Assyria was confident that it will be able to take over not just the northern tribes of Israel, but also go down to Judah and take over, swipe away Jerusalem. Assyria's arrogance is seen further in verses 13 to 14. Look at that in in, uh, how the king speaks about himself. By the strength of my hand, I've done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of the people, plunder their treasures. Later, my hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. Do you see the pride in that man's heart? We'll be able to do it. I have done it. Now, just because Assyria was called by God to accomplish his purposes did not give Assyria any reason to be ang- and, 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 and pass to be arrogant. Readers know we, are no, we know, we have been told a different story so far in the book of Isaiah. It's not the initiative of the king of Assyria who has come against Jerusalem or against the northern tribes. It's God. God is the one who's been bringing this nation against his people. But the king takes all credit in his victories and gives all that credit to himself, to his own strength, to his own wisdom, to his own understanding. Friends, God may use a pagan nation as Assyria to accomplish his purposes. God may use a pagan nation and a proud king to do what God wants him to do. But that does not mean that he will get away, that king will get away with the arrogance, even though he has served God's purposes. Friends, this is a caution for any of us. Just because God calls us to to act in his purposes does not mean that we have reason or right to boast in what we are able to do. God will not allow his arrogance to go unpunished. So look at verse 12. When the Lord had finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Look for more ways in which God responds to the king of Assyria. In verse 15, shall the axe boast over him who hewed with it or saw the saw magnify itself against him who wills it? Therefore the Lord, verse 16, Therefore the Lord of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. God says to the king of Assyria, I will wipe you out in one day. Now turn your Bibles with me to chapter 37 of the book of Isaiah. Years later, Assyria has already conquered the northern tribes, wiped them out entirely, and now is besieging Jerusalem. And they're mocking the people of Jerusalem and the king Hezekiah at that time, saying, don't trust in the Lord. Don't trust the words of the king, Hezekiah, who says, the Lord will defend us. 
God told Hezekiah in chapter 37, verses, verse 35, I will defend the city to save it. For my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And look at verse 36. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. I ask you, how long did it take for the Lord to wipe out the army? One night. Friends, I wonder if you take God's warning and word, whether it's a warning or a promise, I wonder if you take it seriously. God said to the king of Assyria and God said to his people that he will wipe out Assyria in one day. And he did it without even asking the Israelites to to raise one sword. God did it. Remember last week how he said the same point about the experience of Midian? Comparing this rescue like in the day of Midian. Now God says, I will wipe out the Assyrians in one day. And in chapter 37, keep reading Isaiah, he does it. Friends, I wonder, what will it take for us to take God's word seriously? A single threat of God proved to be more reliable than an entire Assyrian army. A single promise of God proved to be more reliable than any other human strength on which Judah was lured to rely on. Friends, the news that God will destroy the arrogant Assyria was another reason why Ahaz and Judah should never have trusted Assyria for help. God was in control. God was already bringing Assyria. And God said, when Assyria will accomplish everything I want in Jerusalem, when that will be done, that's the moment when I'm going to punish them. In other words, they will punish not even an ounce more than what I want them to punish. They will do not once one ounce of more damage than I want them to do. And when my work in Jerusalem is completed, that's when I begin punishing them. And I will do it in one day. Oh, friends, Judah should have never, ever sent envoys to help and ask Assyria for help. They should have asked the Lord. The Lord is worthy to be trusted. Friends, when we are lured in our own arrogance, remember that no matter how many reasons we have, for self-centered confidence, it all evaporates when we get to encounter God. In the third part of our text, the final part of our text, in light of all that God has promised to do against the northern tribes of Israel, against what he has promised to do against Assyria, there's a third point. The alternative to arrogance and self-reliance. This is the third point. The alternative to arrogance and self-reliance. The response that God desires is seen in his remnant. Look at verse 20 and 21. In that day, in other words, in the day when God would, the Assyrians have come, they've done their destruction, God will now wipe out the Assyrians. In that day, the only thing left in the country will be the remnant. Look at, what, how, look at how and what is being said about the remnant. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. 
Friends, this is the response that God has been seeking from his people. Instead of arrogantly relying on human strength, on human wisdom, on human strategy, God desires for his people to trust in him. And trusting in God is defined here by this picture of leaning. Have you ever leaned on something? Like, I'm leaning right now on this podium. I'm letting my posture be held by this podium. Not, Not by just me, by someone else. Leaning on the Lord. Trusting in the Lord means leaning on Him. God says in verse 20, In that day, the remnant of Israel will lean on the Lord in truth. Now, there's an important detail here. It's only the the remnant who will lean on the Lord. The rest have been destroyed by the Assyrians. The only ones who are described as leaning on the Lord are those who have not been destroyed by the Assyrians because the Lord kept them. Later, the Lord destroyed the Assyrians so that the remnant will no longer be able to lean on Assyria. In verse 21, Isaiah declares, a remnant will return to the mighty God. What's involved in leaning? On the Lord, returning to the mighty God. It's not simply that they will return to the land. They will return to their God. That's the point. Relying in the Lord and returning to the Lord go hand in hand. That's why, dear friends, true faith in the Lord is that faith, faith with, which causes us to rely on Him and return to Him. Faith and repentance go hand in hand. You can't have one without the the other. And both of these characteristics now describe the remnant, the returning to the Lord, and the leaning on the Lord. But notice the comparison, verse 22. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Now here's here's the good news. The good news is that a remnant will return. Here's the bad news. The bad news is that not everyone will return. The bad news is that the rest will perish. The bad news is this contrast between the sand of the sea, and by the way, you remember uh, the promises God has given to Abraham, that his people will be like the sand of the sea. This picture of the sand of the sea and numerous people Physically, that's what they were. But, but many have died. Many have not been a part of the remnant. And, and the Apostle Paul picks up this picture of the remnant, that not all Israel is Israel. That not all those who are physically descendants of Israel are the people of God. But only the remnant, the people who do it by faith. That's why Paul speaks so much in Romans chapter 9 about this notion of of the remnant and those who, the remnant are the people who respond to the Lord by faith. And in the book of Romans, this picture of, of relying on the Lord, trusting wholly, entirely on the Lord, is the foundation of our justification before God. What makes us right with God, what delivers us of our bondage to sin, is not reliance on what we do. It's reliance on what God is able to do to rescue us. He has enacted that deliverance. He has enacted that uh, breaking of the bondage by sending His Son, Jesus. 
It is he who paid for the penalty of our sins. It is he whose blood has washed away our blood, our sins, so that through his blood we might be righteous before God. Oh, dear friends, only those who repent and trust in Jesus, relying on Jesus for their salvation, only they are part of the remnant. If you're here this morning, you've never heard this gospel message, or perhaps you've heard it before, I want to call you to repent today, right now as you hear these words. If the Lord alone is able to rescue us from our, de- from our bondage, if He alone is able to do it without our help, entirely upon Him, then come to Him, trust in Him. Leave your ways. Turn away. Rely on the Lord. Oh, dear friends, the rest of our passage speaks about how the people of Assyria have come. In chapter uh, 10, verse 28 through 32, there's this poetic language of how the people of Assyria are coming and the, 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 all these weird names that you can't recognize and can't even pronounce. There are places in Israel that Assyria has, co- has started walking in. But look at the beautiful way in which this chapter ends. Behold, the Lord of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. And that picture of the thickets of the forest with an axe is a picture of Assyria. He will cut it down and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. It is God who will bring the deliverance. All that God's people have to do is trust God. And that involves relying on Him, leaning on Him, and returning to Him. Oh, friends, this is what we want to call you today. If you have not walked with the Lord, if you, if you have not been aware of what God has done for us to rescue us of the bondage of our sin, we want to tell you of that and call you to respond to Him. And if you'd like to know more of what that involves, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But our only confidence before God for being rescued from our from our greatest of enemies, death, sin, judgment, is to turn to the Lord. Why would you not turn to the Lord? God has given this message to the northern tribes. He told them why his anger will not be turned away. May that never be told of you. God also gave Assyria the message. He will, God will take Assyria down. He has. God has given a word of comfort for the remnant. Don't be afraid. The the punishment that Assyria will bring against you will come, but it'll be only a while. And afterwards, I'll destroy them. I am your deliverer. Trust me. Lean on me. Have your confidence fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have declared your power and majesty over arrogant people. And you have not only declared it, but you have shown it in the history of your people. Father, help us to trust in you. Help us to to receive this word as a word of truth, that you are the truth. When we lean on you, when we trust in you, there's nothing that we need to be afraid of for this life or for eternity. We pray that we would walk away, that, we would, that you would blow up the, any, any thought of arrogance, any thought of self-centeredness, any thought of self-sufficiency.
Father, we pray that you would wash us with humility and that in humility we would fully rely on you. Father, we pray that you would do so for the glory of Christ.